good morning. It sounds like there's uh, some households with some real fashion conscious people and maybe a couple with uh, not so much out there. If we uh, haven't had a chance to meet, I'm James, one of the pastors on staff here at Faith. And this is week two of a series that we're calling Truth Versus Love. You'll see the awesome graphic on, on the screen there. And last week, Pastor Mike, he walked us through how we often pit the ideas of truth and love against each other. It's kind of like we have to choose between loving people or speaking truth to them. But the biblical idea is that these two things go together. They're like peanut butter and jelly or french fries and ketchup or if you're a weirdo, french fries and frosties and coffee and donuts. These two things are meant to go together, truth and love. And when we separate them, when we have one without the other, the effect can be disastrous. And so today, we are focusing on what happens when we try to have love without truth. But before we dive into that, I want to take just a little bit of time and make sure that we're on the same page with what I mean when I say truth. So let's talk about that for a second. I want you to imagine that your husband walks out of the bedroom excitedly and says, do you like my new outfit? And it's a terrible outfit, mismatched patterns, the colors aren't right. This is the kind of outfit that if Tan France saw you, he might sit you down and be like, hold on, we need to have a conversation. Well, you are faced with uh, two options here. On one hand, you could look at him and speak truth and say, dude, you look like Steve Urkel. And on, on the other hand, you could, you know, because you love him and he's excited about his outfit, you could say, honey, you look so dapper. You know, that's really not the kind of truth that we're talking about, but it kind of fits into what we mean when we say truth. But we're talking about stuff that's a little bit more serious. Things like when your best friend comes to you and tells you about this new guy that she's dating, but a guy that doesn't love Jesus. When we're talking about speaking truth, we're talking about mustering up the strength to be willing to talk to this friend and to say, hey, I know you really want to find someone to spend the rest of your life with. And I know this guy is handsome. And I know he actually has a job and stuff and that he doesn't live in his parents' basement. But, you know, he doesn't love Jesus. And that doesn't bode well for your future. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about telling truth. There are ways to live that are in line with Jesus, and there are ways to live that aren't. And sometimes we have to be willing to go to folks and speak truth to them to let them know that the path that they're on might not be the path that they should be on. Now, some of you are excited for today's sermon because you love speaking truth to other folks. You're like, yes, it's about time I got a chance to, to hear about this. And if that's you, you probably go to bed tonight and you look at your to-do list and, and you look at all the things on it and it's like, tell Billy he's an idiot, check. Tell Bosh he's incompetent, double check. You know, tell wife she needs to lose 10 pounds, triple check. You know, if, if that's you, please come back next week where we're going to be talking about what happens when we have truth without love. But for today, you know, we are focusing on people who have the opposite problem. Because there are a lot of folks out there who really struggle in speaking truth to the folks that they care about. It's just a, a hard thing for them to do. 
And there's a ton of reasons why it's hard for us to speak truth. And I want to talk about two real quick, just so we can name them and identify. Um, One of those reasons that we struggle to speak truth to folks is that we want people to like us. Who can relate to that? We want people to like us. And we're afraid that if we speak a hard truth to them, it will ruin our relationship. Maybe it'll make things awkward or make it so that they don't want to talk to us anymore. We care more about what people think about us than we do about the outcomes of their life, and so we end up not speaking truth. That means that in some regards, our unwillingness to speak truth is more rooted in a selfish desire to be liked than anything else. But there's another problem in speaking truth, too, that makes it hard, and that's actually our cultural context, because our culture has an aversion to the idea that there are right ways to live and wrong ways to live. Just as an example, a few years ago, I was sitting at a coffee shop drinking my favorite drink, which is an Americano, if you were wondering, and I was doing some writing, and I struck up a conversation with this really friendly couple. And now, anytime you you have a small talk conversation with people, there's a really good chance that they're going to ask you what you do for a living. And just to let you in on a secret, um, that question usually comes with a lot of anxiety for pastors. Because the moment you tell someone that you're a pastor, you just don't know what you're getting yourself into. You know, some people, they're really excited about it, and they're like, hey, I love my church, that's great. And some people are really excited about it, and they're like, hey, I hate my church, and I want to tell you about it. And some people, you know, a lot of people love complaining about their churches, just FYI. Some other people, they want to probe you to figure out if you use the King James Version. And if you don't, they want to tell you about how the NIV was actually developed by the Illuminati. And if you use it, then uh, you are giving into their anti-God agenda. You just don't know what you're going to get when you tell people that you're a pastor. And so I'm, I'm talking to this couple, and I tell them, yeah, I'm a pastor at a local church. And I was surprised because they didn't do anything too crazy. Instead, when they found out that I was a pastor, they said, that is so great. We all need to find something that we find to be true and then live for it. And then they went on to tell me all about how yoga had been a transformational experience for them and how they used to be totally against organized religion, but now they understand that everyone just needs to find their own best path. They need to find what they think is true, find what works best for them, and then go for it. And that conversation, it stands out in my mind because it shows this like growing cultural ethos that has an aversion to claiming that any one way is more right than another. And therefore, what's important is not to tell people when they're on the wrong path, but instead to let people find whichever path is most true for them. In our cultural moment, if it works for me, then it must be true for me, and you really don't have the right to tell me otherwise. And especially for younger people who grew up in this context, it becomes a little more challenging and uncomfortable to speak what we feel is true because we've been brought up in the context where singular objective truth is just not an acceptable proposition and people are not receptive when you try and tell them how they should live. My point is this. For a lot of different reasons, many of us find it hard, whether it's the selfish desire to be liked or because we have an innate cultural aversion, we find it hard to speak the truth to others. Well, good news, Jesus has some words to say about this. 
In the book of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus lays out this big teaching, and he does exactly what we're talking about here. He tells his followers how they should live. And at the very end of this teaching, he says this, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Let's uh, pause and dissect this for a minute. Jesus says, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to what? Destruction. Destruction. More of you responded than I was anticipating. Thank you. (laughs) Now, the Greek word that we translate here as road, it's the word hodos. And the word hodos uh, can be translated as like road. It can be translated as way. It can also be translated as teaching. And so a lot of scholars, they think that Jesus is playing with words here and that when he says the word hodos, he is trying to create a picture of walking down a road that is also commenting on the different teachings of the world out there. And so he says, wide is the gate and easy is the hodos, the road, the way. Easy is the teaching that leads to destruction. Jesus is basically saying, hey, listen to me. I just gave you a lot of teaching about how you should try and live, and you know what? A lot of other people out there are going to tell you how you should try and live too. And there's actually a good chance that their teaching will seem easier, maybe more appealing, maybe less awkward with your friends and family. But he says, that wide gate and easy hodos, that easy teaching, it leads to destruction. And then he says, basically, my way, it might actually seem a little harder to navigate, maybe stringent occasionally. It might seem narrow and small, and maybe people will ridicule you or feel a little bit more awkward when they find out that you're a Christian. But small is the gate, and narrow is the teaching, the hodos, that leads to life. There's a way of life that Jesus teaches, and it leads to true life, life as God wants it to be. And there's an easier, more convenient way that sometimes is more rewarding in the short run, but he says that that leads to destruction. Jesus wants you to know this. There is a true way to live, and that true way is to follow him and his teachings. Now, here's where it kind of comes together. Because there's a true way, according to Jesus, and because there's other ways that lead to destruction— When our love does not include speaking about that true way, then our love becomes powerless to protect people from the devastation and destruction and death that's found along the wide and easy roads. And that's our big idea for today. Love without truth is powerless to protect a person from the devastation and destruction and death that sin will bring to bear on them and those around them. Now, a lot of you, you probably already agree with me. Even if you're not a Christian, you can probably get behind the idea that um, letting people go destroy their lives while you passively sit by and let them do it, that that's not a loving thing to do. But I still want to spend some time talking through this idea. And to do so, I want to ask two questions. I want to first ask, what happens when we have love but not truth? And then we're going to ask the question, how do we do truth well? If we don't really like speaking truth, How can we speak truth well? So let's dig into that first question. What happens when we have love but not truth? You know, back in the early days of the Israelites, there was this guy named Eli, and he had two sons, Phinehas and Hophni. 
and Eli and his two sons, they served at a place called Shiloh, which was where the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant were. And uh, Israelites, they would travel from all over the area to Shiloh in order to sacrifice and worship God. And as the head priest at Shiloh, Eli, he was the top religious figure for the Israelites, and his two sons, Phineas and Hophni, which are really fun names to say, they were next in line to become the head religious figures of Israel. But there's a little bit of a problem here, and this is how the book of 1 Samuel describes the problem. This is chapter 2, starting in verse 12. It says, Eli's sons were scoundrels. I love how the Old Testament, it doesn't like mince words, it just goes for it. They were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now, it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a a three-pronged fork in his hand, and while the meat was being boiled, they would plunge the fork into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servants, they'd come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. And if the person said to him, let the fat be burned first, and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now, and if you don't, I will take it by force. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. So here's what's going on. The sons of Eli, they're straight up stealing the offerings and sacrifices of the people. Before people ever had a chance to sacrifice, they were sending the servants there to take the meat by force so they could have a better cut. Essentially, they were getting fat on stolen steak dinners and leaving the people without a way to properly sacrifice to God. But that's not all of it. There's more. Check out what it says in verse 22. Now Eli, who was very old, he heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance of the tent of meaning. This adds even more to it. Not only are Phinehas and Hophni stealing from the people, but they were sleeping with the women who served at the tabernacle. Now many of the pagan religions in the area, they practice something called cultic shrine prostitution. And if you're watching at home and you got little kids with you, you might want to hit pause and skip ahead for a couple seconds, or else you might have some weird conversations to deal with. But um, cultic shrine prostitution was basically like pornography for the gods. You would go to the temple and pay to get down with one of these shrine prostitutes, and the gods were supposedly watching, and they would enjoy what they would see and then be more favorably disposed to answering your prayers. And so a lot of scholars, they think that Eli's sons, they were seeing what happened at these pagan temples, and they're like, that's what I'm talking about. And so they went and they got prostitutes to be cultic shrine prostitutes at the temple of the Lord, and that they were trying to please God by sleeping with these prostitutes. This is what most people think is going on here, but if you can't get behind that, the other option is just that women had taken a vow of service at the, at the tabernacle and were fulfilling it there. And as um, head leaders at the tabernacle, priests, uh, Phineas and Hophni had great power over these women and they were abusing that power by forcing the women to sleep with them. So either you have cultic shrine prostitution or just straight up sexual abuse. Whatever the case is here, the sons of Eli, 
were scoundrels. They were doing some horrible stuff that was offensive to God and harmful to Israel. So we got to be thinking, well, what's Eli going to do about this? He's their dad and he's their boss. You know, that's win and win. He should be able to do something here. This is what it says that Eli did. This is verse 23. So he said to them, why do you do such things? I hear from the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? You know, at first glance, it seems like Eli's doing the right thing. It seems like he's telling his sons what's what. But when we start to look at the details closely, it paints a different picture. It paints a picture of inaction on the part of Eli. You know, when it says that he heard about everything, it's not that Eli was just finding out what was going on in the tabernacle. There's no way he could have not known about his sons stealing from the people and sleeping with the servant girls. And if he didn't know, there's no way he could have not suspected what was going on. It's too blatant. It's too obvious. So what our passage is painting is the picture that Eli knew about this, but now he was starting to hear about this. That's what it says in verse 23. I hear from the people about these wicked deeds of yours. Eli was starting to address the problem because the problems were getting back to him in the complaints and the grumblings of the people. And additionally, it says in verse 22, Eli, who was very old, heard about everything that was going on. And a lot of scholars think that this detail is meant to bring about the idea that Eli waited until it was too late. He knew what was happening, and he didn't say anything until he was old, and his sons were so set in their ways that they weren't going to stop. We're starting to get a picture of inaction, aren't we? Eli was neglecting truth with his sons. And then when he does decide to say something about it, his talk to them is kind of underwhelming. Uh, I love when you go to the dog park and there's someone there with a dog that does whatever the heck it wants to. You know, their dog's like in the corner killing the squirrel and they're just standing there and they're like, oh, Scooter, you know that's not the right thing to do. You know better. You know, there's no meaning or action in their words. They're just giving lip service while their dog kills poor woodland creatures, you know? <laughs> that's that's kind of what's happening here with Eli because if you compare Eli's response to the responses of other priests and prophets who were dealing with similar offenses, Eli's response in comparison is underwhelming. He doesn't rip his clothes. There's no wailing. There's no weeping. There's no ashes. There's no threatening with death or stoning, no sackcloth, no demand for repentance. Instead, he just says, no, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the people is not good. He doesn't even say it's bad. He doesn't even say it's awful. He doesn't even say it's wrong. He says, it's not good. <laughs> what a wimpy response. What we see here is just a classic example of neglecting truth. Eli lets his sons do whatever they want, all the while he continues to let them live and work in the tabernacle. He cares for them, provides for them. And while they steal from peasants and sexually abuse vulnerable women, he does very little to guide them in the right and true directions of the Lord. He loves his sons, I don't doubt that. But he doesn't speak any truth to them. So what ends up happening? This is chapter 2, verse 27. Now a man of God, which is short for a prophet, came to Eli and said, 
This is what the Lord says. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribe for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that members of your family would minister before me forever, but now the Lord declares, far be it from me, those who honor me I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house so that no one in it will reach old age. Man, it's getting messy in this story. A prophet of God, he shows up and he basically tells Eli, what have you been doing? You've been honoring your sons more than me and you haven't done anything about them stealing. In fact, you've been fattening yourself on what they steal. And then the prophet says, God's removing your family from the priesthood and your sons will die because of their actions. Now, fast forward to chapter four. The Israelites, they're fighting the Philistines and it's going poorly. They're getting their butts kicked. The Philistines are forcing them to retreat. And of course, the soldiers, they are frustrated and angry. So they go to the elders of Israel and they ask, this is chapter four, verse three, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty who's enthroned between the cherubim and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They were there with the ark of the covenant of God. When I was a kid, I loved the 1986 box office animated hit, An American Tale, which gives the accounting of little uh, Fievel Mouskowitz, the mouse immigrant who came to America. Have you guys seen that movie? Oh, good. There's a few of you that are like, love that movie. Well, there's this scene where there's um, a bunch of horrible, angry, bad cats um, who are just doing what cats do, killing mice and stuff. But they're oppressing these poor little immigrant mice, and so the mice, they devise a plan. They're like, let's create a secret weapon to scare the cats. And so the mice, they build the giant mouse of Minsk, which is a huge robotic firework shooting mouse that utterly terrifies the cats and sends them off running. Here's a picture of it on the screen. And uh, they built this secret weapon so that they could unveil it against the cats and essentially create victory over them. And this is exactly how the characters in our story are treating the Ark of the Covenant. To them, it's a secret weapon that they can pull out to scare off the Philistines. They're not viewing the ark as uh, the place of God's presence or a reminder of God's law or a sign that they need to be faithful. It is a powerful secret weapon that they can simply grab and use against their enemies that will guarantee victory. And what's striking in this story is not what the sons of Eli do, Instead, what's striking is what Eli and his sons don't do. They don't pray to God to ask if they should fight the Philistines. They don't pray to God to ask for help in general. They don't inquire as to whether they should take the ark with them. They just go with it. No concern for the holiness of the ark. No concern for God's presence who's with it. They just, they just go. And Eli doesn't do anything to stop them or correct them. And this is how it goes down. When the Philistines learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, 
Nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They're the same gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. But be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they, as they have been subject to you. Be men and fight. It's one of my favorite lines. I just think it's so funny. Be men and fight. So the Philistines, they fought, and the Israelites, they were defeated, and every man, man fled to his tent. And the slaughter was very great, and Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers, and the Ark of the Covenant was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. It's brutal. So what's this show us? Well, Eli consistently neglects speaking truth with his sons, and as a response, they grow up to ignore the ways of God, they steal from the people's offerings, they abuse women at the tabernacle, and the result is they bring ruin not only on themselves, but on everyone around them. You know, the Israelites, they come to the tabernacle and are basically like, we're getting our butts kicked, we need our secret weapon, we need to take the ark with us to fight the Philistines, and Eli, he never stops to say, that's not how this works. The ark's not a secret weapon to wield when you need it. And when his sons grab the ark and go to battle, Eli makes no effort to correct them, stop them, remind them of what is right. He just lets them go. He lets them go on believing that this might work. And the result? The Israelites were just totally led into destruction. 30,000 men lost. Husbands and sons and fathers. And why? Eli didn't speak truth. What else happened? Eli lost both of his sons at the same time. And why? Eli didn't speak truth. And what else happened? The Israelites took a huge economic loss that haunted them for generations. And why? Eli didn't speak truth. And what else happened? The ark was taken for them bringing shame to the religious system. And why? Because Eli didn't speak truth. I have no doubt in my mind that Eli loved his sons, but he neglected to speak truth to them. And because of that, because of that, he did not protect them from the destruction and devastation and death that their sin brought to bear on their lives and the lives of all of Israel. Love without truth is powerless to protect us from the devastation and destruction and death that sin will bring to bear on people and people around them. Now, as we wrap things up, we need to ask two questions. If love without truth is powerless, uh, then how do I speak truth well? Which also includes the question, when should I speak truth? And like I said, today we're focusing more on those of you who struggle to speak truth. We're not really talking as much to you who are like, I love speaking truth. I would have told those kids what was what. We're speaking to those of you who are like, oh, dang, I resonate with Eli. It's so hard to speak truth when I need to. And so how do we speak truth well, and when should we do it? Well, first, if you're struggling with whether or not you should try and speak truth to someone, it is important that you be praying for the person you need to speak to and for guidance on how to act. Because as Christ followers, we want to make sure that we're seeking help from the Spirit so that we can have his guidance in our actions. It's a great and important starting point. But also consider these three questions. First, do I have a relationship with this person that allows me to speak into their life? 
Uh, you don't have a relationship with everyone that puts you in a position to speak truth to them. I mean, I'm sure if you have been spoken to by people and you're like, who are you? You don't have a relationship to speak truth to everyone, but you are in a position to speak truth to some. And when you're considering if you should speak truth, ask this question because if you have a relationship that would allow it and the person needs it, you're probably a person that God wants to use to speak truth to them. Secondly, consider asking, if I were making that decision, would I want someone to come to me and speak some truth to me? You know, if I were making that same screw-up, maybe you've already done that same screw-up, would I want someone to come talk to me before I did it? And if the answer is yes, you probably should try and speak truth to that person. And third, does my truth-telling have the potential to prevent negative and harmful consequences? I want to explain this a bit. Whenever you speak truth to someone, there is a large risk that you will damage your relationship. That's just the truth. It's how it goes. But there are actions and decisions that people make in life that have brutal and long-lasting negative consequences. And sometimes the loving and self-sacrificial thing to do is to risk damaging your relationship for the sake of keeping that person from ruining their life. So if it's the case that the potential consequences of this person's actions are harmful and your input has the potential to help change their course, you should probably risk being bold and try to speak truth. Finally, Recognize that you have more than one tool in your toolbox. I wish I would have brought like a tool belt, like pulled out a bunch of tools for you. But the truth is we got a bunch of different tools for speaking truth. Our automatic thought for what it looks like to speak truth to someone is like sitting them down and being like, stop being an idiot. What are you doing? That's what we typically think. But that's not your only truth telling tool. You have a bunch of tools. Consider this little verse in the New Testament where the leader Timothy received um, from his mentor, the Apostle Paul, some advice. Paul's talking about how to deal with the people that Timothy's pastoring, and Paul says to them, uh, to Timothy, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. Do you, do you see what Paul's saying there? He's saying, hey, your people, they're going to stop listening to truth. They're going to start to turn and follow all sorts of crazy teachings. They're going to do some real dumb stuff. And because of that, you need to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. We might think that uh, Paul's using hendiatis, like saying three words that all mean the same thing. But actually, Paul's giving Timothy three different tools for how to speak truth. He says reprove. And to reprove carries the idea of exposing what's wrong. It's the idea of helping people see where they're getting off track. It's not, it's not confronting them and being like, hey, don't be stupid, follow Jesus. No, this is asking good questions. This is listening as people process what's going on in their lives. And this is doing everything you can to steer them into realizing their error. You are literally helping them reprove what they probably already know is true. And then Paul says rebuke. And this is that like bold and confrontational method. Jesus, he rebukes demons, he rebukes storms. He sometimes rebukes his disciples when they need it. And the truth is, sometimes we need to be bold like this and tell people 
I think what you're doing is wrong and will not end well. This is rebuking. And then there's exhorting. And exhorting carries the idea of like appealing and encouraging folks. So it's when someone knows what the right choice to make is, but they need someone to come alongside them and, and say, hey, I think you know what the right thing to do is. What can I do to help you do it? What can I do to help you see and stay on the right course? It's encouraging folks to make the right choices that they already know to make. It's exhorting. These are some of the, truth, the tools of truth-telling. In some situations, they require one tool and some another, and you won't learn to use these unless you practice with them by using them. But as a general rule, try to reprove and exhort before you rebuke. Most people don't respond well to rebuking. Uh, but sometimes you need to do it because they're not responding to exhorting or reproving. So as we finish here, please remember this. Love without truth is powerless. And if you, whether you want to or not, um, you, or sorry, you, whether you want to or not, you do need to occasionally be bearers of truth in other people's lives. So learn the tools of truth-telling and use them when you need to. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for these passages and these stories and how they remind us that uh, truth without love is powerless and love without truth is powerless. God, we ask for boldness when we need to be bold, wisdom on how we can rebuke and exhort and reprove with effective attitudes. God, we pray for those folks in our lives that we need to speak to. Give us boldness to do it and give them receptiveness to hear it so that we can help you change the course of their lives. We thank you, God. We praise you. Amen.